Welcome to the Harbinger of Fun podcast. We talk about what makes something fun, why it matters, and how to wield its mighty powers. Let's get on with the show. Too unfiltered that I often will say things that are <laughs> objectionable. <laughs> I will say I'm a fan of your of your jokes, your daily jokes. <laughs> Me too. So, that is that is a highlight. So I everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This podcast is about what makes something fun, why it matters, and how to wield its mighty powers. Today I have a very special guest, Nolan Bushnell and Dr. Leah Haynes. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Nolan and I actually worked together before we designed Saint Noir, which was an award-winning board game. And I have had one or two experiences at Tubit Circus that I've designed. Uh, Dr. Leia, I would love to, and of course, Nolan Bushnell, a founder of Atari, Chuck E. Cheese, legend, godfather of the game industry. Leia, I would love to, you are the, the CEO of Tubit, the Tubit Circus Foundation. I am. Um, and you've taught courses at Antioch University, I believe. Yes, I did. I started actually teaching early childhood education. So from preschool to college is where I've been teaching. Okay. She's, got, she's got range. Right. That's, that's <laughs> range. To, to say the least. Uh, Kristen, would you love to? So Kristen is my co-host today. We worked together for three years at a learning virtual reality company. Um, um and so, Kristen, would you love to give your like to give yourself a short intro? Sure. Hi, I'm Kristen Torrance. My background is in instructional design, game based learning, and cognitive science. And so, I also I started in K twelve and doing creating educational games before transitioning into adult learning for virtual reality. Fabulous. And and Kristen just got back from Devler, and she she gave a talk there last week. Yeah, uh, our t- our talk was on participatory design for virtual reality training. Cool. Yeah, so I would love to start off. Uh, so we've been looking at your book, Shaping the Future of Education, and I would love to start off with the the genesis of this. What what uh, what started this? The idea the the idea for this book. Well, can I take that, Nolan? Sure. Because because Nolan had written, you know, a good chunk of of. Uh, writing on what his ideas were for the future of education. But really the the impetus for me was standing at the bar at Two-Bit Circus when Nolan said to me, you can show me kids who have the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, and most of them will probably lose that uh, when when you put them in front of their favorite video game. That they can focus. It's not the kids that can't focus. It's that they can't focus on boring experiences. And that was what really triggered my interest in, I mean, really, if Nolan asks you to co-author a book with him, what fool is going to say no? And when I read what Nolan had written, I was just all in. I mean, I really was excited about his ideas and how they uh, how they would fit into the ecosystem that I was working in. Well, I basically, I feel like if you want to change, you have to be clear and you kind of have to have a blueprint. And so I I like to start with a white paper <laughs> and say, okay, if the school system had been designed after the computer was ubiquitous, what would it be like? And I tried to sort of wrap in everything I knew about 
the research I'd done on how do we learn? You know, how do we, um, how does, how does our diet affect our ability to learn? How does exercise affect our ability to learn? I've been a big fan of John Ratty from, who wrote a book called Spark, which I really recommend, in which he was able to create double digit increases in outcomes just by introducing appropriate exercise into a school. You know, things like that. And so my, I had two or three rules. One, I wanted to focus on outcomes. Two, it couldn't be something that you threw money at, you know, because a lot of people believe, hey, if you just throw a lot of money at a problem, it fixes it. It's actually not true in the school system because the the school districts that spend, I think, parts of New York spend $27,000 a kid, whereas uh, in California, it's 10000 a kid. No discernible outcome differences. In fact, sometimes these well-funded schools are not doing that well. Uh, so that was kind of my reason. And I just decided to put down how I wanted my kids to be taught. And I have eight kids, so I've gone to back to school nights and sat on the little chairs and, (laughs) and, and that was kind of my, my touch point. And Leah, I thought, you know, here's a PhD in education. Maybe she can make it sound like I know what I'm doing. Really, Nolan's yeah. Nolan's ideas in the books is even just the the like how many kids hated physical education, but if we need mm-hmm. them to move, so what you know Nolan's suggestion it doesn't need to be a physical education class; it just needs to be something the kid wants to do that raises their heart rate, gets their aerobic exercise in. So it could be a dance class, it could be a basketball court, it could whatever whatever they want to do. Have enough range of options for the kids that they can pick mm-hmm. something physical that they can get excited about. And it only has to be 20 minutes. I mean, NASA mm. has done a lot of research on that. And a 20-minute of, ex- of aggressive exercise secretes BDNF, and that's where all the benefit comes. Um, mm. And, you know, B-Saver, you know, that's mm. a good exercise VR game. It's just every everybody that gets into it, you know, they come out with a sweat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And yeah, that totally resonates. I, by the way, I do have the same relationship. So with Kristen, I was designing this VR game and I needed Kristen to come in and make it sound like I knew what I was doing with <laughs> <laughs> their educational background. What do you think is the, what do you think is the application for, for VR in regular school? Kristen, do you want to take this one? Sorry, it's just unmuting myself. Yeah, I think there are so many different applications for VR in regular school, right? If we're thinking about civics education and being able to be transported uh, maybe to Rome and seeing you know that evolve throughout history or even chemistry and being able to sort of slam elements of the periodic table together and see what those create. You know, there's so many different possibilities there in terms of just opening up students' eyes to both micro and macro, you know, systems that are that are in our world and even maybe even giving them the ability to control some of those different systems or add a variable into some of the different systems 
that they're exposed to, right? And, and seeing ripple effects and cause and effects relationships by the things that they are adding var- like variable variables to. Those are just, you know, when we're thinking about hard skills or, or science, those are some elements. But again, there's art, right? Like things like tilt brush and ability to express themselves in, in, in an artistic way or, you know, thinking about soft skills training. Joe and I have worked on a ton of different soft skills training. And when it comes to students, you know, maybe there's a way to have vulnerable conversations or, you know, how do I address my friend who may have hurt my feelings, you know, and what if I've, I'm experiencing back something that I potentially had said to my friend that maybe hurt their feelings. So there's a lot of place taking and being in someone else's shoes. I think that students can really learn from those types of VR experiences, both hard and soft skills. Yes. There's an interesting graph that shows what we remember two weeks after an experience. And what we read, we only remember 10% of. And most of school is based on reading and then coming back and talking about it. I can't even imagine what the rate would be because it's 90% of what we do that we remember two weeks later. In virtual reality, I imagine teaching students about the founding fathers coming up with the constitution and having them immersed in the experience in virtual reality would be absolutely wonderful. But the game that we're working on, kids are playing video games all the time. Why do we have them sitting in school the way that we have them sitting in school? We could put what we want them to learn into a compelling game that they want to play and, and then let them move at their own pace. Because that's the other thing that Nolan had come up with in, in what he wrote was like, why are we batching kids by age? Why not mm-hmm. by interest? And having a novice, an intermediary, and a master in that particular range of interest, there's no point in your adult life where you work only with people your own age. <laughs> yeah. like, we all need to know how to talk across generations and you know, in elementary school and middle school, generations are a year. Like the seventh grade does mm-hmm. not talk to the eighth grade, or at least the eighth grade won't talk to the seventh grade. So mix mm-hmm. them up and have them, you know, working together in in areas of interest would, would certainly be a first step toward making it more interesting for kids. You know, and also a year when you're eight years old has a big, big difference in maturity. And some kids are just not as mature, and yet they're competing with kids who are much more mature. Malcolm Gladwell did a thing on that where he, where all the good hockey players were essentially born in January, February, or March, which was the cutoff date. I don't know if you read that book. I forget the name of it now. But, but so by batching, rather than focusing on individuals, I... I'd like to say the best school, we know we've accomplished it when we have no grades and no grades, where it's Mm. based on mastery. So everybody has to get an A, so to speak. You know what I mean? Mm. Because a lot of things are are delta functions. That is, they're additive. And, And if you have four years of getting C's in math, the wheels come off when you need to go to algebra or trigonometry because you didn't really understand the precursors. Mm -hmm. And so by having everybody 
go to mastery, I think that, and, and then by knowing what you know and only presenting you with new lessons after you know it, after you have all the precursors, precognitions, I think that that could be really, really helpful because, you know, uh, maybe just presenting the information at the right time in the right place, kids will experience nothing but success instead of frustration. And it also eliminates the humility issue. Like if you're the kid like I was in school where I, I got so nervous when I had to stand up and read in front of the class that I just couldn't do it. Or I was considered a slow learner. And in that, it's hard to get past that. I was well into my adult life before I went back to graduate school because, and even when I did go back, I, I really didn't expect to complete a PhD. Really thought I would just, you know, go for a little while as an adult and for my own interest. But I got there and because it was individualized learning, because I was in a program that let, you know, I just, I mostly worked on my own. I went in once a quarter for, you know, a week's worth of work with professors. And the rest of the time I was on my own. It was a whole different reality. And giving kids guide rails, like you, you need teachers in the room, but you need teachers for a different part of the job when you have kids all working at, at their own pace. A decade or so ago, it wasn't possible without burdening the teacher, but now it really is. The, even when a, if a teacher wants to test a kid on a particular issue, that teacher can go to OpenAI and ask it to put together a quiz that will help us know whether this student knows what they're talking about. It's really, there are so many advantages to having less humiliation for the student. The only one who knows where you are in your studies are you, the software, and your teacher. Yeah. Well, I think the phrase is the new school, you're the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage. <laughs> right. I love that. I, for sure, I would have appreciated that growing up just because I, I did not like school all the way through <laughs> high school. And it wasn't until college when I was pursuing something I liked that I was actually really good at, in school, but I didn't know that the first 18 years of my life. Is there an additional benefit besides, you know, kind of moving away from, you know, sort of forcing people down a certain track that may not be resonating with them? Is there an additional advantage to kind of focusing on, or I guess, what is the advantage to focusing on specific interests of, of students? There's actually an existence proof of that because that's <laughs> sort of the center of gravity of uh, Finland, the fin Finnish school system. And they mm -hmm. consistently, you know, are at the top of all the stats. Oh, okay. So they have a similar system. To... Yeah, there's a, a well, really good uh, local example as well. There are two brothers, the Lee brothers, who are the youngest pair to ever be invited to speak at Comic-Con. They were 13 and 15. And mm -hmm. they taught themselves physics because their passion was building cardboard superheroes. So life-size cardboard superheroes. And the first one they built after about six or eight weeks fell apart. They had to learn how to build a skeleton for it. And because they traveled to different events, they had to teach themselves how to build one that could be taken apart and put back together. <laughs> well, I know you mentioned in, in your book about teachers taking more of the facilitator role in helping really engage learners in their own exploration and finding out what their interests are, what their ambitions are. 
and really sort of autonomy and finding their own direction. I'm curious, you know, that's a very different sort of teacher-student relationship that then is present right now, I'd assume. Um, So just sort of curious if you could share more about how to kind of flip that for for teachers and get more buy-in around that. Well, you, in order to do that, you have to unbundle what a teacher has to do, you know, because, you know, if, if they're going to be the sage on the stage all the time, mm-hmm. that's, that's one to many. And so you have to have a significant part of the classroom working on their own so that they can have the time and the bandwidth to devote to an individual. I also believe that computers can do an awful lot of diagnostics. And, you know, you know, there's the Myers-Briggs test and, and there's a whole bunch of tests. Howard Gardner in the nine or eight levels of, uh, of, of intelligence. I think that, that we can do a better job of helping the child understand their differences, understand the options that they have, because a lot of times they hear their options from their parents, which is can be my, very myoptic, you know. And and I think that today it would be. I mean, there's a lot of parents that say, "Well, become a doctor or a lawyer," and and does, and that list doesn't include video game designer, <laughs> where in fact that's probably a much better pathway. <laughs> right. That's interesting. I'm curious because in the in in the you know, the previous book you wrote, finding the next Steve Jobs, it sounds like there's a lot of similarities in in how you how you because in that book you talk about like sort of letting sort of these these uh, like these geniuses these individuals kind of be themselves. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap between that and and this and this program. I have one brain and I kind of have biases. <laughs> no, I, well, I'd say that my foundational point is outcomes. Focus on outcomes, not recipes, not not process. That's kind of the number one thing. And so, so if you if you focus on outcomes, you know, you, you get rid of discrimination. You get rid of you know gender bias or ethnic bias. You get rid of things that don't count. And and it biases the world towards people with passion and grit and stick to and creativity. And I think a lot of times creativity is perceived as being kind of out of the box, when in fact that's kind of one of the things we want. We want people who are out of the box, but scary, you know, because mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times new ideas are scary for the people that have them and the people that listen to them. <laughs> I think Colin's point about outcomes is really important, in, especially in this current conversation around AI. If a student mm-hmm. uses AI to, to organize their paper, to write their paper, if, if they present it, you know, instead of handing it in to the teacher, if you have the students present it to their class and do a Q&A, if the student knows the material, why do we care? how they gained that knowledge. 
And it levels the playing field. I was dyslexic, which was part of why the reading and why a slow learner as a kid in those days, no one was testing for that. And and a AI would have allowed me, I could talk through my ideas, but I couldn't get them onto a piece of paper to make sense until much later in my life. AI mm-hmm. would have helped with that. And there are a lot of kids who who have learning differences and, you know, do we care? It's like when audiobooks became prevalent and so many people were like oh you didn't read it you listened to it so taking mm-hmm. it in through your eyes is more important than your ears and the graph i was talking about earlier 10% of what we read we remember 20% of what we hear we remember and 30% if we hear both we read it and hear it so it's just you know the if the outcome is positive then what is the problem with how they got there mm. yeah i you know i I started on audiobooks many years ago. And, you know, just based on when I'm driving or exercising, you can go through a lot of books, you know, listening to them. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was literate because I went back and, <laughs> and, and listened to some of the books that I was supposed to have read in, in high school and college and didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And I enjoyed them. I mean, I went through a, all the Ernest Hemingway books. I went through, you know, mm-hmm. you know these, you know, the classics, and I got into biographies, and and, uh, and of course, my center of gravity was science fiction. But uh, but I think that uh, we need to, we don't need to be judgmental about about you know the resonant channels. Right. That makes me think about. Um- yeah. I think a principle that you mentioned in the book about tools and instruments and having self-selection around the, you know, the types of tools or instruments students are using to help kind of facilitate their learning. Uh, I wonder if you could just share more about that. Yeah. You want to take that, Leah? Yeah. I would start by, by saying, you know, the, in order to read and do a lot of the work that we assign in school, you have to be sitting still at a desk. And many kids have a really hard time with that. I came home from, there was no kindergarten. I grew up on a farm in Canada. There was no kindergarten. So I came home from my first day of first grade and I told my mom I wasn't going back. And she was shocked because I was very social. She thought I would love it. And I said, no, we had to sit still all day. I can't sit still. Just not part of my, so when audiobooks came out, reading. I have the same experience Nolan had. I read all the things. I did not finish a book when I was in high school. Got Cole's notes and skimmed through and so I could understand the basics. But I, didn't, I wasn't a reader until audiobooks became important. And now, like several a month, that's one of the tools. But the other, like uh, maker spaces, which are really becoming prevalent. And I was so excited this week. I, I had lunch with the one of the women who is in charge of curriculum development for LAUSD. And they have decided that maker spaces are an important step toward understanding computer science. So they're now looking at putting maker spaces in all the schools. We've already, I, you know, I, I, I know Nolan because I run the Two-Bit Circus Foundation, which is Nolan's oldest son, Two-Bit Circus. So we've, the foundation built over 330 maker spaces in mostly LAUSD schools and I was just thrilled to hear that they're doing it for all the schools now, because that 90% of what you remember two weeks later 
requires doing. Project-based learning, which has been struggling for decades to get a hold in schools, is now like affirmed by these kinds of statistics. We want kids to, and engagement. I mean, that, that's back to what we were talking about earlier, but how do you get kids engaged in their education? Make it interesting and get them involved in something that they can't wait to get back to the next day and have them working in groups so that they're learning about collaboration and, and being problem mm-hmm. solvers. But then tools can be as simple as like stuff you gather from the recycle bin. Like It doesn't have to be expensive tools. Every, every three-year-old should be issued a hot glue gun. <laughs> Low intensity hot food guy. <laughs> oh no. One of the things they learn is to not burn themselves. True, they learn that quickly. We do have we put hot glue guns in our elementary school and first grade kindergarten kids are using them with gloves and goggles. So they're learning tool safety from a very young age. That's perfect. Um <laughs> so have you in your uh, working together have you seen um what is the biggest overlap that you've seen between like video games and fun and learning like what is the what is what is something that they have in common because yeah way before i met nolan i i was saying to people if only we could get like the best of video game designers working with the best of curriculum designers and meet kids where they are. And I think the overlap is, I mean, there's a great article that came out about a year ago that was the first thing that was really positive about a kid's brain and video games. It teaches them rigor. It teaches them planning, gives them, you know, a path to follow. And they, if they fail, they get back in there. I mean, we have a generation of kids who don't like to try something new. If they don't know already how to do it, they're nervous of that. So I feel like there are just so many advantages that the video game world has learned. And learning how to keep kids engaged in a game is part of the planning of the game. So when Nolan first you know, brought up this idea to me, it was I was so excited about it because I've been wanting somebody to be doing this for a long time. You know, there's, there's this concept of flow. And uh, a professor from, I think, Chicago, who is a Hungarian, and you, I'm going to murder his name, but he's, his name is Nihai Chichimihai. Pretty, pretty good. I'm not even going to try and, and do it. But he did move from Chicago to Chapman University, so he's now a local for us. Oh, okay. But anyway, what he, he postulates is the state of flow is what we do in video games in which the problem has to be hard, but not frustrating. And so there's this very narrow gap of just hard enough, and but not too hard. And that's why we in video games, we have levels. Because as you get skilled at one level, you have to go to the next level that is harder. You know, and that's what keeps you engaged. Because as your skills increase, the difficulty increases. And mm-hmm. so so that that's kind of a core principle of, of how we keep engagement. Mm-hmm. The other part that video games give is is context. And and you know, so why do I need math? What you know, 
what's math important for? You know, and and then all of a sudden you're you're confronted with Ohm's law and you want to figure out a circuit for a project you're you're building. Or, you know, there's a there was a wonderful game. I don't know if you ever played it, Joe, called The Incredible Machine. Mm-hmm. Where, where for 3DO, yeah. Where it was really I mean, it was I think the in the three eighty three eighty six world <laughs> and and it was all about physics and, and helping the cat or rat escape the cat and get the cheese, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but in doing so you couldn't help but learn. And then, you know, clash of clans and, and civilization. These were really good. Uh, my youngest son got into that, a couple of those games and he got obsessed with step nomads to the point where the older kids said, Wyatt, you can't have dinner with us unless you promise to not talk about the step nomads. You know, the thing about video, well, about anything we put in front of kids, everything we show them, everything we expose them to is teaching. It's just whether it's effective or not, or whether it's interesting to them or not. And, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do is build a game that on its own in game mechanics is a fun game. And then Mm -hmm. all of the things you need to do during the game to get to the next level will be part of what you're, what we're deliberately trying to, to teach. And, you know, no, no need for a test because you know, when the student gets to level six, well, they're algebra ready, you know, then now we can teach it. So it's all within the game, and uh, and it's not without complications to build that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. I uh, I spent the the last twelve or so years of my career specifically trying to answer the question of what makes something fun, mm-hmm. and the, the very end of it is learning. That that's the end. it's yeah. it's a uh, it's tension that's cut by discovery, but discovery is learning. And when I kind of got to that conclusion, I was upset. Because school is all learning. It's supposed to be all about learning. And it wasn't fun at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, Leah, when Joe and I were working together, he uh, he's actually a bit of a savant. You know, he, he sounds like a podcast interviewer here, but he actually has some serious technical chops. I try, yeah. Let's see. I have one more question question here i don't want to take too much of your guys time uh what is because i've always i've always kind of i always loved learning and i love getting better and i can't stop learning now but when i was in school i I absolutely hated it what do you think is the biggest barrier today as to why schools don't run like this if they're they're so much better for everyone involved that is such a good question (laughs) oh no (laughs) I think a lot of it is they're un- they're living unexamined lives, and mm. I don't. I think that if you were to interview a typical administrator or or school board, they don't know as much about the future as we do. And more than that, they've gotten where they are by being good recipe players, and so there's a mismatch. Bureaucracy is about risk avoidance, not innovation. And so what what our job is, and, and I and I see that as kind of our holy mission, is 
once you have a definitive and proven existence proof of a better way, that's the first step. And the first step is to prove efficacy. Step two, proselyze, get get some some people who agree that are and and you know there's a statistical distribution and there are early adopters in the school system and you get them to do and then pretty soon they see five percent of the schools really outperforming and doing it a certain way and then the the ten percent that are not early adopters but kind of fast followers they come on board now you get up to 20 percent but it's but it's a process and one of the reasons we wrote the book is we don't know where they are, but there are probably 10,000 people out there that once their brain is tickled with this new concept, they're going to think about it and they'll take little pieces of it and, and adopt it. And, and, and there'll be a little, a little school, a neighborhood school that was, you know, started by a pastor of a church and they have 20 students and all of a sudden they'll use it. And then there'll be this other little private school that has 200 students and they'll try it. And then somewhere along the line, there'll be a charter school and, and it's just chipping away. Uh, and, and then change is like a flywheel. It's really hard to get it started. But then each time you tick it a little bit, it gets harder to stop it. Mm. And the more powerful your arguments are and the more definitive your outcomes are, like 5% better, insufficient. 20% better, eh, get some attention. Twice as good, now you're talking. Mm. It sounds like there's a lot of similarities between innovation because sometimes i think how do you know if you're being too innovative and i know you've probably had that moment once or twice in your career <laughs> nolan how do, how do you know if maybe you're maybe the world is not ready or if you are in that sweet spot of this is what the world needs next good question and a hard one to answer uh, I... i've gotten it wrong as <laughs> much as the right <laughs> bet you learned more from the times you got it wrong. And I think well, that I, the pandemic has made the world aware of what's not working. You know, nobody was really paying attention to their kids' education other than parent-teacher night and a bit of homework here and there until the pandemic. And then all of the parents got a first-row seat to just how dysfunctional it is. The kids didn't want hmm. to do it. And we're asking them at home to go to a boring Zoom with a teacher who doesn't know how to use it and do their work instead of playing the game on that same device. I mean, it was possible. I think at least the response that we've gotten to date has the majority of the response is really exciting about what this could mean if we're able to do it. The people mm -hmm. who've not liked it as much are generally kind of old school education, like you're really hard on traditional education. I'm like, yeah, I am because it didn't work for me. It didn't work for a lot of people. And so, you know, I think the world is ready for something 
new and by doing it the way we're like we're doing a slow rollout to schools we are doing this as a an offering to parents and kids initially but we will test it in some of the schools that we're already working with and and I Nolan was saying like once you can prove efficacy work with the some of the lowest performing schools in multiple districts if we can go into those schools and support the teachers with this game it will roll out and i think you know getting getting the teachers excited about it and then the teachers unions excited about it then i think the administration will follow mm-hmm. well if you Kristen, talk to teachers mm-hmm. the one thing they hate about their job is getting the kids settled down <laughs> disruption is particularly in some of the rougher places where you know the first 15 minutes of a class is basically broken until they can get you know threats and sending six kids to the principal's office and you know all that and and i think that by engaging you take the kids who then so you start out playing the game you have headphones that gets rid of the audience for the disruptors you know and and so all of a sudden when you make the teacher's life easier then you got to that's that's a good point i used to teach high school in torrance california and the kids were very energetic i'd say and i was teaching game design and so once i could get them into the game it was fine but before that yeah it was, it was just going to speak it was, to I, just the like nature so how innovative your program is because it really does push the boundaries of what the school staff but even just environmentally what they're used to right i think from what i can recall you propose just a redesign of the school building itself creating spaces for things like school companies, right? That emphasis on entrepreneurship, workout rooms, uh, gyms, I think uh, different workstations and stuff. That I think is just rethinking about the environment as a whole, because it does have an influence on children's behavior, right? Like the environment we're situated in impacts the way in which we kind of move about in, in the space. And I can absolutely see like that being, yes, a barrier, but something so freeing and in terms of inspiring creativity and autonomy within the school. Well, a nap room is going to be a little controversial, but, you know. Yeah. If I remember correctly, (laughs) when I was in kindergarten, we had a nap time. Right. And so, and... The statistics show that if you take a 20-minute nap after lunch, your out your afternoon outcomes are significantly higher. And high school students yeah. who stay up all night playing video games might need that 20-minute nap in the morning and in the afternoon. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I think we're going to find out what kids need a high protein and versus a high carb breakfast. Those are different things because some kids. You know, your brain burns a massive amount of carbs. And uh, and yet, at the same time, carb, you know, too many carbs, and all of a sudden you get that energy, not just in your brain, but in the whole, whole rest of you. So 
I think we need to figure that out a little bit better than we know it today. Yeah, I love that. I love how holistic it is. It's just, it's on multiple touch points throughout a person's life. So yeah, the, the book is Shaping the Future of Education. It's on sale now. And I feel like, you know, getting this out to the learning community, which Kristen is a big part of, and getting the word out and then spreading that message. I feel like that's that's one way of doing this. <laughs> there it is, Shaping the Future of Education. <laughs> Please buy it, review it on Amazon, and let's 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 spread the word on this. Um, yeah. Thank you, you know, so much. Just, uh, huh? I got to correct you. You need to buy five or six and give them away. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> bigger. Yes. Ask. It's a bigger ask. <laughs> I, I think if there's a book that's worth it, it's this one. <laughs> thank so you. please buy a dozen copies. Thank you so much, Nolan and and Leah, for being on this podcast. I absolutely love what you guys are doing. Well, Joe, I miss you. You know, we we got to work on a project together one of these days. Maybe we got to suck you into Exodexa a little bit because you are a talent. I a thank you so much. So I much. would absolutely love that. Okay, let's All do right. it. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Kristen. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about this show, including where you can find our book, Blueprint for Fun, you can visit us at harbingeroffun.com. See you next episode.